Remain standing for our gospel lesson from Luke, starting in verse 56 of chapter 23 and going into chapter 24. This is God's gospel. And they, the women, rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. But they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And it happened, as they were greatly perplexed about this, that, behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, they said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead. He is not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them, who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. Thus far the reading of God's word, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please bless the reading and hearing, preaching, receiving of your word this Lord's Day as we meditate on the resurrection of our Savior. Open our hearts and our minds and our eyes to see the wondrous truths in your word. Sanctify us even now by your word as you have promised to do. We ask for this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, all four Gospels record the resurrection of Jesus, but Luke is the only Gospel to tell us that when the women came to the tomb... There were two angels dressed in shining garments who asked the women this penetrating question. Why do you seek the living among the dead? We call this a rhetorical question. The angels weren't expecting an answer. Actually, they were instructing the women, pushing the women, forcing the women to re-examine their faith, re-examine their theology, re-examine their understanding of who Jesus is, re-examine their relationship with Jesus. See, the women were confused. They were disoriented to who Jesus is and what he came to do. And the question put to them was something of a rebuke, but it was a gracious rebuke, a loving rebuke, an instructive rebuke, a healing rebuke, a joyful rebuke rebuke, a rebuke that was laced with the gospel. 
the women were looking for Jesus among the dead, which is to say they were acting as Jesus, as if Jesus were still dead. More significantly, they were acting as if Jesus was going to stay dead. That's why they brought the spices to the tomb. At this point, the grief-stricken women and the grief-stricken apostles, in their deep despair, they were trying to figure out what it would mean moving forward to remember and venerate their dead Lord, this, their dead Messiah. How would they honor his life now that he's dead? He wasn't supposed to die. What's it mean? How would they make sense of God and life, theology? How, how would they find meaning and purpose now that Jesus was among the dead? They were attempting, you see, to make sense of history and theology, trying to figure out how to relate to God, scrambling to find significance in, in the life and teachings of Jesus, clamoring to find their spiritual footing, all on the assumption that Jesus was dead and would stay dead. In other words, these women and apostles were a lot like us. Oftentimes, we find ourselves doing theology or doing life or, or doing our Christian walk as if Jesus is not really here, not really alive. We confess every week, of course, that Jesus was resurrected on the third day. But that confession doesn't always make it into the recesses of our hearts and our minds. It doesn't always permeate our our thoughts, our decisions. It, it doesn't always inform our understanding of God. It's not always the focal point of reality, even though it is. It's not always the focal point of our relationship with God and our perspective on the world. Often we look for God and relate to God as if his son were still in the tomb. We act as though we serve a dead Christ. The personal living Jesus you see, is often far from our thoughts. His resurrection power doesn't always characterize our lives. Like these despairing women and apostles, the disciples, we, we lack rivers of living water because, the, because we lack a heart that has been flooded with the living Christ. So we're not totally unlike these first disciples, are we? Today's text wakes us up. It's a gracious, loving, instructive, healing, and joyful rebuke, even to us. It, it reminds us, it reminds you that to find God, you must look for his son, and you must look for his son among the living. To know God personally, to walk with Him faithfully and intimately, you must seek after His resurrected Son with all of your heart. It would be good if you have an open Bible today as we walk through this passage in Luke 24. Actually, as you noticed, the section begins at the end of Luke 23 in the middle of verse 56 where it says, And they, that is the women... Rested on the Sabbath according to the commandment. The women are resting on this Sabbath, and so is the Lord Jesus. 
Remember, he rested on the seventh day of the week back in Genesis at the end of his creation, work in creation. And now he rests on the new creation uh, seventh day. He, he rests from his new creation work on the Saturday between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. On the following day, Jesus is going to rise from the dead and usher in a greater Sabbath rest, bringing all of the old covenant Sabbaths to culmination and fulfillment. Hebrews 4 says that those who believe in the risen Jesus will enter into a greater Sabbath rest, a rest that no one in the old covenant ever experienced. The last verse in Luke 23 is connected to the first verse in Luke 24. That's not obvious right away, but let me read verse 1 and I'll, I'll tell you what I mean. Now on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. In the the phrase, on the first day of the week, the word week is the word Sabbath. The same word that appears at the end of Luke 23. First day of the week is the first day after the Sabbath. So Luke uses the word Sabbath twice here to get in these two verses to draw our attention to the old covenant theology of Sabbath. The Sabbath commemorated both creation and redemption. Creation and new creation. In Exodus 20, let me remind you that Moses tells Israel to remember the Sabbath. Why? Well, in Exodus 20, he appeals to to God's rest in creation. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So the Sabbath principle is rooted in creation week. But when Moses gives the Ten Commandments 40 years later in Deuteronomy 5, he appeals to Israel's redemption. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. You see, the Sabbath commemorated creation and redemption, creation, new creation. What Luke's doing here at the end of 23 and the beginning of 24 is taking us from old creation to new creation. The death and resurrection of Jesus is the transition from the old to the new. Jesus rested on the last day of the old covenant. And he rose from the dead, we could say, on the first day of the new covenant. He he died on the sixth day, rested on the seventh, and rose on the eighth, the day of new beginnings. Easter is the eighth day of the old week, which is the first day of the new week. Luke, like the other three uh, Gospels, also describes the time of day that this happened. It's interesting that they all do this because it's important. Matthew refers to the dawning of the new day. Mark describes it as very early in the morning. John says it was so early that it was still somewhat dark. Luke uses a unique phrase that the other three don't use, even though it kind of gets translated the same. He calls it deep dawn. That's what the phrase very early in the morning means in verse 1. It was at deep 
dawn. And one, one extended definition of this phrase is of deep dawn is the dim twilight that precedes the dawn, the thick fullness of night that has not yet yielded to the clear transparency of day. So the emphasis in all four Gospels is on the coming of new light, the transition from darkness to light, that, that mysterious spot in there, in the middle. It's the transition from one day to the next. That's when the women appear at the empty tomb, which means that Jesus must have just, he must have risen just seconds or minutes before they arrived during that transition from evening to morning, from darkness to light. In Genesis 1, morning marks the end of the previous day and the beginning of the new day. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. So each day is complete when morning arrives. Deep dawn is the transition point from when the first day gives way to the second day. And Luke wants his readers, he wants us to view this scene from the perspective of the separation of darkness and light. That's the visual he's giving us and the symbolism, the Old Testament imagery. In Genesis 1, God separated the darkness from the light. In Luke 24, the resurrection of the God-man separates the darkness of the old creation from the light of the new creation. The old is gone. The new is here. If you know the risen Lord, if you know Jesus, then you too have transitioned from the old to the new. If you've been united to the resurrected Jesus by faith in Him, by trusting in Him for your salvation, you are a new creation. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, for everyone in, in Christ, the new creation has come. So if you're in Christ, for you, the new creation has come. The light has dawned. The old is gone, Paul says, and the new is here. It's not true for everyone. It's true for those who know Jesus, those who are connected, united to Jesus by faith. Colossians 1.13 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Therefore, Paul says in Ephesians 5, do not become partners with the sons of disobedience, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Your transition from darkness to light, from old to new, from death to resurrection, will manifest itself in a transformed life. Transition always leads to transformation. In this passage, our gospel passage, we observe a transformation taking place 
in the, in the women as they move through the events of this scene. Even before the resurrection, we see them keeping the Sabbath according to the commandment. So just as Zechariah and Elizabeth walked in all the Lord's commandments blamelessly back in Luke 1, remember? Not without sin, but, but faithfully. So also these women rested on the Sabbath in obedience to God's law. These are faithful women. This is a good thing, but it also highlights that these women are coming to the tomb from the perspective of the old creation, old covenant, and that's all. That's all they've got. They're coming to the tomb to anoint a dead Jesus. And like good old covenant believers, they of course believed in the resurrection of the faithful at the end of history when we all be given new bodies the last day. But they're not expecting resurrection now in the middle of history, even though Jesus said it was going to happen. They're stuck in the old. They need to come fully into the new, which is already here. Verse 2, but they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. Then they entered and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. Luke uses the verb find twice in, in, that, in, in verses 2 and 3. The women found the stone rolled away from the empty tomb, but did not find Jesus in it. To find the tomb empty, in, in one sense, is to find nothing, right? There's, there's an irony here. But in finding nothing, the women made, us, made the greatest find of all. They discovered that Jesus is risen, except that they didn't get it right away. The women, they need the empty tomb to be interpreted, to be explained. They're still in a state of confusion. They don't yet grasp the theological and spiritual ramifications, significance of the empty tomb. But a moment of revelation is coming about to take place. They're about to understand. Verse 4, and it happened as they were greatly perplexed about this, that behold, two men stood by them in shining garments. That phrase, and behold, two men, if you were reading through the, the book of Luke all the way through, when you got to Luke 24 and you read this, and behold, two men, it would take you back to Luke 9, where the same exact phrase is used in the account of the transfiguration. The two shining men at Jesus' transfiguration were Moses and Elijah. And do you remember what they were talking to Jesus about there on the mountain? In their glory. Luke 9.31 says that Moses and Elijah appeared in glory and spoke with Jesus about his Exodus, which he was about to fulfill in Jerusalem. The death and resurrection of Jesus in Jerusalem is the new and greater Exodus for the people of God. If you had asked an old covenant believer, what's the greatest act of redemption in, in your history? He no doubt would have said the Exodus when God redeemed us from our bondage to Egypt. But Moses 
And Elijah, these two old covenant saints, realize that Jesus is about to accomplish a far greater exodus, an exodus in which God redeemed us from our bondage to sin and death. A far greater Egypt. Jesus was delivered over to death for our sins, Paul says, and he was raised to life for our justification, Romans 4.25. The exodus of Christ delivers us from the old and transfers us into the new. Now, the women perceive that the angels are heavenly visitors, and they're afraid. Verse 5, Then, as they were afraid and bowed their faces to the earth, the angels said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He's not here, but is risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. The angels try to help the women transition from the old to the new. And they do it by reminding them of what the Lord had already told them more than once. And it works. A breakthrough occurs. We see their transition and transformation in verse 8. And the women remembered his words. That's the first time Jesus' words are remembered. Everyone was forgetful up to this point. The word of God finally penetrates uncomprehending minds and produces faith. They not only believe the gospel, they also become evangelists. Verse 9, then they returned from the tomb and told these things to the eleven and to all the rest. The eleven are the twelve disciples minus Judas. All the rest would have included the 70 that Jesus sent out in Luke 10 and maybe others. One reason historians are forced to take seriously the gospel accounts of Christ's resurrection is that all four accounts have women as the eyewitnesses of these things, the angels in the tomb, the words from the angels. The women see Jesus outside the tomb. If the gospel writers had wanted to make up a story about the resurrection, they would have put men at the empty tomb instead of women. You see, the testimony of women had little to no standing. In fact, having women as the main eyewitnesses instead of men damaged the case for the resurrection in some people's minds. So the only reason Luke would have put women at the tomb is that this is actually the way it happened. Luke even names some of the women. In verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But the men would have none of it. The gospel message from the women is met with condescending disbelief. Verse 11, And their words seemed to them like idle tales, and they did not believe them. Idle tales, we could translate that nonsense. Luke couldn't have come up with a more condescending term than this idle the Greek word is leros, which is where we get our word delirious. These women are clearly speaking 
crazy words. But in verse 12, Peter begins to make his transition from darkness to light. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself at what had happened. So in Luke 2, the baby wrapped in strips of cloth was a sign of the Messiah's birth. In Luke 24, the linen cloths lying alone are a sign of the Messiah's resurrection. Peter marvels, which is, it, it's the response of one who is struggling to comprehend facts that he can't explain. He doesn't have categories for. He's, he, he's moving away from the darkness and into the light. Out of the old and into the new. He's making the transition by God's grace and he's about to be transformed into a new creation in Christ. Transition and transformation come when you seek Jesus among the living rather than among the dead. To know God, to know the living God, you must look for his son among the living. To know God personally, to walk with him faithfully and in closeness, you must seek after his resurrected son with all of your heart. The women and the apostles were looking for Jesus among the dead because they had not yet come to terms with the meaning of his death. That's the underlying problem here. Before you can understand the meaning of the resurrection, you must understand the meaning of his death. When the angels graciously rebuke the women, do you remember what they reminded him of? them of? Look back up in verse 7. Verse 7 is the heart of this passage. It's the, the kerygma, the gospel proclamation. Verse 7 is where the angels remind the women of what Jesus said in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. It's interesting, in, in, our, in, in the text, actually, Jesus said die, and, and now it's put a finer point on it, crucified. But he, all, he already said, you've got to take up your cross and follow me. He was going to the cross the whole time, and that was his message. And in, an important verb here is the, the word must. We're going to camp out on that for just a minute. It, it was necessary that Jesus be delivered up and crucified. The women didn't understand the necessity of Christ's resurrection because they did not understand the necessity of Christ's death. The, the women were just like a lot of us in the church today. They, they knew that Jesus had died. That's a fact. But they didn't know that he had to die. They knew that he had been crucified, but they didn't know that he had to be crucified. They didn't realize that his death was necessary for their salvation. To them, his death was just another 
maybe, maybe the crowning example of his exemplary courage. What was the impact of Christ's death on their lives, on their thoughts, on their actions? The only thing it really caused them to do was to honor the memory of this great man who had lived a good life and said some great things and died a noble death. The response to the death of Jesus was to pay the respects to, this, to his body, the body of this great man, and to remember his life as a good example of faithfulness. It's all they had. And, and for many churchgoers, I'm afraid, this is as far as their Christianity goes. Many in the church, perhaps many of you here today, think that being a Christian primarily means having high respect for Jesus and trying to live like him. You'd love to join the women in putting expensive spices on Jesus' dead body. If that's you, then you need to hear, and it can be all of us at times, you need to hear, just as these women needed to hear, that your respect for Jesus and your acts of service to Jesus cannot save you. That's not a good religion. You need to know that just that Jesus died, but you also need to know that he had to die as a sacrifice for your sins. All of your service isn't enough. You're, you're too far gone. You're too lost, too sinful, too guilty, too unlike Jesus. You're not a good person. You need a Savior who died for you. That's the only religion that could be of any good to you. Jesus didn't die primarily as your example. He died mainly as your substitute. All of us tend to forget this. And when you forget it, you're forgetting the gospel. Until you fully realize that Jesus had to die. That's why God sent him. He had to die for you and that you cannot save yourself through your faithfulness. Your, your religion will be a grind. You'll be as burdened and sorrowful as these women who are going to the tomb to anoint the dead Messiah. Do you know that Jesus had to die for you or is that somewhat offensive, insulting? Do you live as though you really need a Savior to save you from your sins and that you're just as much as in need of this as the next guy and every other guy? If not, then the resurrection of Jesus is just a cool special effects. It's great. It's miraculous. It's inspiring. It makes for a great holiday. And you're glad it happened. But you don't know why it had to happen. Until you comprehend that you have a major sin problem and that Jesus had to die for your sins, then you, like, like the women and the apostles, will not understand that he had to rise for your justification, as Paul says in Romans 4.25. Let's d dig a little deeper in this. There, there are two indicators that you might be failing to understand that the death and resurrection of Jesus 
was for your sin problem. One is self-pity, and the other is self-loathing. And those aren't the same thing. Self-pity says, I'm a pretty decent person, and yet my life is not going the way it should. Life isn't fair. God's not fair, and he, has it, he seems to have it in for me. You know, why me? Why this again? Those kind of questions just constantly come to the surface. And, and then, again, this is every one of us at times, right? We all have moments when we just feel sorry for ourselves. It shouldn't be this bad. And when this is you, you figure that you deserve all the good stuff that you've got and probably a little more, and you don't deserve any of the bad stuff, or at least not most of it. You don't believe, you see, that Jesus had to die to save you from your depravity. If you believe this, you'd say, I don't deserve anything good. But because Jesus died and rose from the dead for me, I am rich. This kind of resurrection gratitude drives out self-pity. It gets rid of the grind. It gets you beyond the trudge. It, it lifts the burden and the sorrow. It gives flight to your faith because it's centered on the risen Lord rather than on self. Self-loathing is different from self-pity. Uh, the self-loathing person is constantly beating himself up over his shortcomings, always condemning himself for his failures. This, too, is every one of us at times. And when you do this, you've forgotten that you, you couldn't have been good enough in the first place. You, you can't be good enough to save yourself, and you've forgotten how deep your sin really goes. One of the things that we remind each other of in our home, maybe I do it more than my other family members, is that we're all a lot worse than we think. It, it's, it's good to remind one another when we're despairing over our sins. It, it, it's worse than you think. The self-loathing Christian says, I'm a horrible father because I exasperated my children. Again, I'm a horrible wife because I disrespected my husband. Again, I, I'm a horrible leader in my home. I haven't discipled my children well. I'm a horrible mom because I berated my kids yet again. I, I'm a horrible friend. You know, I'm just generally a horrible person because I acted selfishly. Again, I'm, I, I'm petty. I'm un, undisciplined, unreliable, dishonest, self-seeking, and more. Actually, my friend, it's a lot worse than you think. You're worse than you thought. It's just true. We won't ever understand in this life what God saved us from. That's just inside of us. Which is good news in a sense. Um, because if we really knew how bad it was, we, uh, if we knew the depths of our depravity, uh, we wouldn't be able to recover. It would be too much to bear. The cure for self-loathing is to recognize that God knows the depths of your depravity. He's the only one. Unlike you, he knows exactly how bad you really are. And yet he was willing to send his son to die for all of your depraved sins, every one of them. The son of God likewise knows you perfectly. 
He knows how horrible you are. He sees your public sin. He sees the sin that you hide from, public, from the public. And he sees the sin in your heart that even you don't see. And yet he was willing to be forsaken by the Father and to endure your punishment on the cross so that you and I could be forgiven. The death and resurrection of Christ is the only reason, the only reason, the sole reason you can be confident before God. It's 100% of the reason. No amount of self-loathing, self-punishment can make you acceptable to God. And to imagine otherwise is to believe in a dead Jesus who didn't really have to die for your sins and who therefore didn't have to be raised for your justification. In closing, I want you to think about another way that you, as a saved person, can treat Jesus as if he were still dead. And it's in your relationship with him. In your individual relationship with Jesus. You know the meaning of Christ's death and resurrection. And I'll I'll even grant you, you grasp it better than most. You understand better than most that he had to die and that he had to rise from the dead for your sins. You believe this. You've meditated on it, thought about it, read about it more than most. But in your actual relationship with him, well, he might as well be dead. You don't feel him. You don't sense his presence. You barely know him. You don't know what to say, perhaps, when when someone asks you about your walk with the Lord, with the risen Christ. Because you barely think about him in that personal kind of a way, you don't relate to him very personally. And I'm talking about solid Christian people here. Intellectually, you're all in. Theologically, you're solid. But perhaps there's almost no spiritual reality. The resurrection of Jesus, the risen Lord, is not really reflected in your life. Your communion with Jesus looks a lot like the person taking flowers to the grave of the loved one. When you visit the grave of a loved one, there's no relationship with the buried person. You can honor the tomb with flowers. You can honor the person's memory with words. We do this at funerals. You can think about the person and remember their life. And it can be inspiring. It can be quite emotional, moving. But there's nothing relational about it. You're not, you're not talking to the deceased person. You're not interacting with them. You're interacting with a memory. And that's what the women were doing. They went to the tomb to interact with a dead person's memory. They didn't know 
Jesus because he was alive and they thought he was dead. So is your prayer life like standing at the grave of a loved one? Do you relate to Jesus personally? Do do you ever sense his presence? Would your relationship with Jesus look any different if he were still dead? Easter pushes us beyond just believing in the resurrection of the Lord, beyond just confessing it as as a true historical fact that it is. It pushes us beyond that to actually knowing him intimately as the friend of sinners. Friend for sinners. Easter says Jesus is a personal living reality. And it asks the question, what difference does that make in your life? It's not enough to know that Jesus loves you. You also need to know, experience that love. You need to taste and see that the Lord Jesus Christ is good. Here's my challenge to all of us Here's my challenge to you for the next year. Between Easter 2022 and Easter 2023, endeavor to know Jesus as your personal living Lord. Make that a a deeper reality with more consequences in your life. This next year, endeavor to talk to him regularly and personally. Become more disciplined in prayer, but also more spontaneous. Become more aware of his presence. He said he would be with you to the very end. Claim that promise, believe it, and enjoy it. Lean into it. Experience the joy of the Lord. Let's, next Easter, let's all, me included, let's all come back knowing Jesus better than we do right now. See, all kinds of pleasures and and joys await the person who would know the risen Savior well, intimately, personally. When you taste the love and the acceptance and approval of Jesus, you no longer need to, to grab and steal the love and and acceptance and approval of the people around you. You You don't need that. When you experience the glorious presence of Jesus, you'll you'll no longer need to seek for glory and significance in in your relationships or in your vocation, in your accomplishments, in your successes. And how well you've done as a, as a leader of your home or as a mother or as a student, as a friend. That's not where your glory and significance comes from. You see, all the aches and longings of your, of your heart, all the aches and longings of your heart are healed and satisfied in the living one. The one who is among the living not the dead. In The Weight of Glory, C.S. Lewis writes this, 
our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, our longing to be on the inside of some door which we have always seen from the outside is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. And to be at last summoned inside would be both glory and honor beyond all our merits and also the healing of that old ache. The door Lewis is talking about it has been opened and you've been summoned inside. The way through is the open tomb. Enter with Peter and the women and see that Jesus isn't there. He's gone. He is risen. And then for the rest of your life and with all of your heart, seek your living Lord. For you will seek him and find him when you seek him with all your heart. Let's pray and ask for God's help in doing this. Oh, Father, thank you for uniting us to the risen Lord. Thank you for raising us from our spiritual death, from our stupor, for raising us from the grave and giving us life in your Son, Jesus. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to seek him and to know him and to find him, the living one who died for our deliverance from sin and rose from the dead for our justification. Give us, give us the joy of the Lord. Give us resurrection joy as we trust in Jesus, as we walk with him, and as we obey him as our king, as our Lord. We thank you for we th we thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for our resurrection to come. And we ask for your help in walking in the newness of life that you have given us even now. And we pray this in Jesus name. Amen.